We are uh, coming toward the end of this life of Abraham, and now Abraham has matured to a point where what we can see with Abraham is his faith is expressed in a way that is is much more, um, uh, it has much more trust in God. Abraham is at a point where he lives in a way that he doesn't trust himself and his ideas, but he trusts more fully in God. In the early parts of Abraham's life, he was still learning this. Even though his faith was there, and he left Ur, and he came uh, to this place that God had promised him, it's different now. He's not uh, taking shortcuts. He's not acting in fear. He's not trying to be pragmatic about this new dilemma that comes up, which is he needs to find a wife for his son. Now he's more mature, and he's trusting God in some ways that we see in this. Now, there are different uh, challenges that will come up in your life, in our lives. Some of them come from the blessings that God gives us, like we just heard about the Pennings, that they had a little baby. That's a great time, but it can be a a time when you're overwhelmed, like uh, they have this new baby son, how do I raise this child? What do I do? How do How do we go about life in this way? Abraham is at the end of his life, and he knows it. And the way that he talks to his servant, and the way that he makes these plans, give you the impression that he knows his life could be over at any point. It could come to an end, and he's putting his, this uh, solemn oath on his servant. And uh, there could be times for us like that. Like, we don't know how many days are left. And when we get into our later years, and our health is at a bad point... We have to think through these thoughts. Like, I need to be ready to hand things over to my family. I need to be ready to leave the right legacy. I want to be prepared for that transition. Um, Other things in life that can come up can be very difficult challenges. Um, The death of a loved one, difficulty at work um, with relationships, where we need to know you know, what are we to do? How are we to live in this season of life? One of the biggest questions that comes up when we go through these different seasons of life is this, our thoughts about God. And one of the biggest questions is this, what is God doing right now? And then a question that correlates to that for us is, what does God want me to do right now? When we go through these different seasons of life, uh, we need to have answers to these questions. That big question, what is God doing right now, often comes to us when we go through situations that we don't want to be in. When we're in a situation where we suffer, where we have been wronged, where we are made to walk through a season of life that we don't want. Um, The answer... To that is something that we need to have in our minds. The answer is this, that God is always working. God is accomplishing things that he wants to accomplish. And that is something that we can say, we look back on what God has done. And for Christians, very often we can look back on what God has done and say, God has worked in the past. And it's also easy to look forward to the things that God promises to do in the future and say, I know God will do things in the future. But the challenge for us is very often to look at right now and the situation you're in right now 
and to realize that God is actually at work in good ways for his people right now. That working of God is a word that theologians call providence. Providence. It's the idea that God is always working. And so as we look at this passage in Genesis 24, this passage should teach us to trust God obediently, especially when we do not comprehend the things that He is doing. We'll look at this in four uh, parts. This is a long chapter, 67 verses. And the first part we'll look at in verses 1 through 9 is the solemn oath that Abraham gives to his servant, where he makes him take an oath and he sends him on this mission because Isaac needs a wife and he needs a good wife. The second is verses 10 through 28, where this servant is seeking God's provision. And then, in verses 29 through 60, he is finding God's plan. Where after seeking it, the things of God become clear because God has to act. And then it becomes clear because God has provided the way forward. And then finally, in verses 61 through 67, this comes to completion where God does, in fact, provide a wife for Isaac. And Isaac enjoys the blessing of that, and God's purposes continue on. So first, verses 1 through 9, this solemn mission. Isaac needs a good wife. And it's not just because Isaac is lonely, which it seems that he is. It's that Isaac, the, the idea that God was doing something big, Abraham knows the promises of God, that have to do with this heir. And through Isaac, all of his offspring, all of his legacy would be named. And this blessing that God gave to Abraham would come through this individual, this young man, Isaac. And so he needs a wife so that they can have children. So that this promise of God can continue. And so that the, the offspring of Abraham will be, in fact, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands that he, would stand, that he was standing on. So, the thing that happens in this first part, where he calls his servant to him, he makes him swear by Yahweh. And he says, the important part here is, you have to understand this part of your mission, that you will not take a wife from the Canaanites. You must not take a woman from the Canaanites. This idea of the corruption that would come in, that they must be separated from the way of the people that are living here in this land. You cannot compromise. He says that you need to go back to the country from which I came. You need to go to my kindred and to, a family, to that family there in order to find a wife for my son Isaac. He needed to have a wife for his son that was not um, compromised with this idol worship with this way of living that was very corrupt in Canaan. And so the servant says to, Isaac, or says to Abraham, well, okay, I'm thinking through the plans. Um, let's say I go and I find someone, but let's say she is not willing to come back here. At that point, I can bring Isaac, right? And I can go there. And, and Abraham says, no. 
Um, he says, absolutely not. Verse 6, Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Do you know that Isaac never leaves the promised land? And we don't know exactly why, but it seems that um, this idea that we have come here and we have to stay anchored here and where God has called us and placed us, we have to go through this. And so he is not to leave and go back there. He says this. He says, God will send his angel ahead of you. God will make it happen. And this seems to be an expression of the faith of Abraham, where Abraham is saying, look, uh, I know what God wants me to do. I know what God doesn't want me to do. So we're going to do what God has allowed and how he's provided. But we will not compromise with sin. We will not do what God does not want us to do. And that is informative for us. As we walk through life and as we're trying to figure out God's plan and we're trying to ask God, what are you doing right now? This is something that we can know and hold on to. That where God has revealed to us, there are certain things that we must not do. The ways that we would rely on our own understanding. The way that we would compromise and do things that we know God doesn't want us to do. That is sin. Faith steers away from those things. Steers away from the compromises with the world and with sin. God... Uh, God wants us to do certain things and stay away from other things. So Abraham tells his servant, do not take my son back there. So for us, trusting God means we must not compromise with sin. When we do this, the things that we think God wants, the ways, the things that we think we believe God wants to do and got what God's plans are, they might happen in God's way. Or they might not. So when we walk by faith, we look for the ways that God will provide. And we walk in ways that we know are pleasing to Him. We want God to provide as we obey Him and walk in a good way. Live our lives in a way that we are obeying Him and trusting Him. Or, if we live those lives of obedience, and the things that we think God will do, or what we think are God's plans... If they don't happen the way we think they will, in that case, his plan is different than we have yet understood. And we have to realign ourselves with that. So the servant goes, and the servant is on his way. And verses 10 through 28 then, we look at how they are seeking God's provision. Now any believer can walk in these ways. Any believer will do the things that we see from verses 1 through 28. As we look now at 10 through 28, what we see is this servant goes and is praying and is seeking God's um, provision for his master Abraham and his master Isaac. And he takes 10 camels. That is a very impressive entourage to go with 10 camels. You remember when Abraham was down in Egypt and Pharaoh sent him away? One of the lavish kingly gifts that he gave was camels. Well, Abraham has more now. And then this this servant also takes choice gifts. And so the things you can imagine are the kinds of gifts that would really impress people. The kind of gifts that you bring out and people say, wow. And that's what happens whenever they get to this city. Gold and, and, and silver and costly things. 
things that are expensive, things that are, are glorious in an expensive way. He takes these things and he goes to Mesopotamia. Ten camels and some servants. And when he gets there, he goes to a well. And that's a normal place. Like if we're, if we're traveling and you're on a road trip in a vehicle, one of the first things you'll do is you'll find a place like a filling station. And you'll go to like a Wawa or whatever they are, wherever they are. And you'll say, we need to refill the car and, and let's get a bite to eat. And that's, that's kind of the place where people would also meet and, and talk with one another. So he goes to a well. And this is the place where Abraham's family had lived. And that's where they were living. He makes the camels kneel down. And what the servant does then is he prays. And he asks God in a certain way by saying, look, I'm, I'm going to look for a bride for Isaac. And what I'll do is I'll just start asking around. And the young woman that I ask for a drink, if she offers me a drink and then she offers to water the camels, let her be the one. So this is his prayer. He's saying, God, let's, let's have it work out this way. And as soon as he lifts up his eyes, he sees Rebecca coming. The ten camels are there, and he sees something amazing. She's beautiful. She's, she's, a, she's a hard worker. She offers, she gives him a drink, but she also offers to water the camels. Now, before we move beyond that, you have to understand this. To water ten camels is a large chore. I was looking this up uh, uh, the other day. Camels can drink... They can drink uh, 30 gallons in 20 minutes, one camel. And a camel can drink up to 50 or more than 50 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And so this, this young woman is offering to water 10 camels who have just crossed a long journey and they're thirsty. So for her to have this servant, who's probably an older man, the servant of Abraham, sit down and say, I'll water them. And look at what she says, until they have finished drinking. And so she does. That's a lot of hard work. So if you take 10 camels, and let's say they drink at least 30 gallons each, that's 300 gallons. And how much is the bucket that she's lowering into the well? This young woman is lowering this bucket in and drawing this back up. Let's say it's a two-gallon container. So she's pulling this up. What would that be? 150 times. It's quick math. 150 times. She's just like hauling this up, pouring more into the trough. The camels are just absorbing it. The guy's sitting there, and he's just kind of musing. You know, he, I, don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's rude. He probably could have done some work, he just, but he just crosses. But she offered, and he's thinking, Lord, is this the one? Now, any believer could do this much. I mean, young people, you're looking for God's will for who's the person that I should marry. You think these thoughts. Is she a hard worker? Is he a guy that prays? Does she read her Bible? Is he, is he kind to his family and to people that are strangers? You know, you ask these questions about the quality of the character of the other person because you're doing what any believer should do, what this guy is doing here. You're trying to discern... God's will. You're trying to figure out, is this what God wants me to do? So this servant is doing just that. And so he has been seeking God's provision, and it seems that he has found it. And so he talks to her, and when she finishes, 
um, watering the camels, and the camels have finished drinking, he speaks to her. He says, Who's, uh, whose daughter are you? And she explains who she is, and he is overwhelmed because he, he nailed it. God has led him to the place where his kindred actually live, and here's the, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, right here, at the well. This is exactly what we were looking for. This is what we were praying for. This must be God's will. And so he worships God. It says he bows down and he worships the Lord. And he had prayed and asked that God would show him hesed, that he would show him steadfast love, that he would show him the constant loyalty of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And now he bows down and he says, you have not forgotten your steadfast love to Abraham. And he worships him and he puts... He puts this fancy jewelry, it's really beautiful and impressive, on Rebecca. And then she runs back. Now, they have been seeking God's will, and the question now turns to how will the family respond? You might meet a girl that you want to marry, but the family might not be crazy about that. Well, what happens next is they have to find if this is God's plan. Now, if it's God's plan, then he will open up the doors and he will make a way for this to happen. If God's plan is for something to happen, it will happen. And even wicked people cannot stop God's plan from happening. Here, the first person we're introduced to in this next section, verses 29 through 60, is Laban. Laban is not a good guy in Scripture, mostly. He does a few things that are okay. But Laban is sort of this, this guy that we see in the future where Jacob is sort of trapped and he cheats Jacob and he's greedy and he always wants first and he always wants most and he always trades, he always changes the terms of an agreement. And so he tries to do that here. This is what happens. After Rebecca runs back to her mother's household and she explains these things, Laban sees what's happening, and all of a sudden he perks up. Ooh, gold. That's nice jewelry. Where'd you get that, Rebecca? And Rebecca's explaining this guy that shows up and the things that he said. This is what it says about Laban. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. And he heard the words of Rebecca, and that seems to be why he addresses this man in this way. He addresses him with faith. It's like, you know, I'm a pastor, and sometimes I'll go and I'll talk to people, and they'll use language that is like pastor language. And that seems to be the way that Laban is talking to the servant here. He goes out and he says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why are you standing outside? I have prepared, I have prepared the house, and a place for the camels. No, you didn't, Laban. No, as soon as you saw the gold, you ran out. That's what it says. But he's saying, I prepared all this for you. That's Laban. The thing that, we're, the thing that we get from this is that Laban, um, Laban sort of has this effect through this narrative where he's, he has this, these tentacles that want to grab onto Rebecca, that want to grab onto this servant, that want to keep them there in this place called Mesopotamia. Remember Abraham's charge, though? You must not 
you must not take my son there. And you have to get a wife and bring her back here. Well, that's going to be pretty hard because Laban really doesn't want that to happen. So they go in. Abraham's servant goes in with Laban into this household. The servants that are with this servant, the other men that are with him, they wash up, they take care of the camels, and then they're going to sit down to eat. Food was set before him, and the servant says, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. And here, you see this servant being constant with holding on to this solemn oath that he took with Abraham. He has a job to do, and he won't let himself be be pulled into, be lulled into this creeping effect that would comfort him and lull him into staying there, into getting comfortable there. What he does is, he says, I have to say something. And so what he does is he goes through an account of all the things that have happened up to this point. He explains some things that we haven't seen yet in this story, that this servant knows and, and, and says, God has given a son through Sarah when she was basically a granny. You know, you're the granddaughter of Nahor, but this, this woman, Rebecca, but he's the son. So while you're having grandchildren, they're having their children. But God did this. God made this amazing thing happen. And God has made him wealthy, incredibly wealthy. God has provided. And everything that Abraham owns is going to Isaac. And then he explains these things and he says, and this is, what God, this is what Abraham said to me, that God would send his angel ahead of me to come here to get this bride for him. And then I prayed and I went there and he recounts and he says, I asked for this and that's exactly what God did. And so he's laying this all out to them. And down in verses 49... Uh, 48 and 49, he says, um, The God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son, God has done this. Now, okay, the, the servant says, God has opened all these doors. Now here's the question for you. And he gives them an ultimatum. He says, Now, if you are going to show steadfast love And he uses the word that he says that he was asking for from God. Now he's asking for it from these people. And faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. Because I'm hitting the road right away. Because my job is to find a bride for Isaac. So he says, look, is it yes or is it no? And now the ultimatum is before Laban and the family. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, well, if we're not going to eat until... He didn't say that. But that's what the guy said. He said, we're not going to eat until you give me an answer, until I've said what I said. Now give me an answer. So the guy won't sit down to eat yet. Laban and Bethuel said, well, this is coming from Yahweh. Now, we don't know how much faith they really have in Yahweh. But at this point, God has opened up the answer. And they say, look, Rebecca is before you. This is what God has done. God has provided for these two to be together. And they say, take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. 
and it seems like it's all done. Okay, it seems like this is God's will. But Laban is famous for changing the goal line, for changing the terms of how these things are going to work out. So they have their meal, they sleep the night, the next morning, the servant wakes up, and Laban comes and he says, whoa, whoa, not so fast. Let's uh, let, the, let the young woman stay here a while, at least 10 days. I don't even know why he says that, but he says at least. So there's a minimum put on it. The servant says this. He says, look, do not delay me. The Lord has prospered my way. You get this feeling that they're trying to creep and pull him in. You're trying to get them to stay there. And this is the exact thing that Abraham said you must not do. So they say something that seems kind of tricky. They say, well, why don't we bring her? See what she says. Okay? Now, at this point, it's like a coin toss. What is she going to say? Do you want to go with this stranger, this man that you only met yesterday? Or do you want to stay here a little longer with your family that loves you and has always provided for you? It's kind of a manipulative thing. The girl says, I'll go. It's amazing. I, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking like, well, she did grow up with Laban. And he probably always had the first and the best piece of pie. And he was always probably, you know, yeah, I'm ready to get out of here. But however God worked in her, that's her answer. So they're kind of left like, man, we thought that was a shoe in but she's going to go. So they do. And so then the servant gives gifts to the mother Milka and to Laban, he gives lavish gifts to them and they hit the road. Now at this point, you have to see that only God could have opened those doors. Only God could have steered the hearts of this family to let their daughter go. Their tentacles were strong and they were, they were trying to bring them in. But through all of those things, God had provided now, in this story, we see that this is a happy ending. Um, we see how God worked for his people. We see how God's providence, how God's plans and his workings were so that Isaac would have a son, or Isaac would have a wife in Rebekah, and that Abraham's son would have a bride. So, um, Abraham and his servant, through this whole thing, were trusting God. They would not compromise They knew this is what God wants and this is not what God wants. We think it's God's plan for him to have a bride. And then God revealed that this is, in fact, God's plan. Now, the first people that were reading this passage, the first people that read this narrative would have been the nation of Israel as they were in the wilderness about to enter the promised land. Moses wrote this to them at that time. And the idea here is that God is always working. God provides for his people. God would see them through, and they must not compromise. And the lessons that God was teaching Israel when they were in the wilderness is not to trust in themselves, and that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And God provided for them in those years, and God took care of them in those years. And he led them in, and they needed to learn That their job, even when they don't understand the things that are happening around them, even when life is difficult and they're wondering, what is God doing right now? They must take what they know of God and obey that. They must walk in faith. 
we have a similar lesson to learn from this passage. We must learn to live lives that consider God's providence, that remember that God is always working, that he is working out the things that he wants to accomplish. We have to know God's providence, the truth that God is working out all things according to his good and his perfect and his holy will. Never compromising, never taking shortcuts, never relying on our own reason to get what we think ought to happen rather than what God will provide for to happen. Now, here's a couple questions. When we think about this idea of God's providence, well, what is that in the first place? I've tried to explain it, but the providence of God is the answer to that question. What is God doing right now? And the answer is this. God is working all things to accomplish his purposes. This is good news for people that are in Christ. This is really good news for everyone who is on God's side, in God's family, of God's people. It's amazing good news. Now, we say that God is working all things. And that, that can hurt our brains. Because there are good things that happen and there are things that are just evil that happen. That's true. One of the questions that people often ask is, well, if God is in charge of everything that happens and he works everything for his plans, then, here's the way that it's phrased, are we just robots? Are we just pawns? Like, do we even make real decisions? Well, here's the answer. It's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and. One, God is sovereign. God is in charge of everything. And at the same time, you and every human that's made in God's image act with freedom. You make real choices, whether for good or for evil. You really do. And at the same time, God is 100% in control. That's called concurrence. These things happen at the same time. So while the servant was going and praying and looking... Okay, he, was, he was doing real things. He was exercising his will and the will of Abraham. At the same time, God was working. Rebecca was already walking to the well before this guy started praying. And when he opens his eyes, she's there. God is sovereign over all these things. Now, why do we use the word providence instead of, instead of sovereignty? Well, there's a book by John Piper that came out about a year ago, called Providence. And this book is massive. It's, I don't know, 700 pages. You can read it for free online at the Desiring God website. This is what John Piper says in the first chapter of the book. He says, the reason this book is about providence, the providence of God rather than the sovereignty of God, is that the term sovereignty does not contain the idea of purposeful action. But the term providence does. Sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills. But in itself, it does not express any design or goal. So you see the difference there. Of course, he says, God's sovereignty is purposeful. It does have design. It does pursue a goal. Um, But we know this not simply because God is sovereign, but because he is wise, because he has plans, because he is accomplishing something. And because... The Bible portrays him as having purposes in everything that he does. 
As it says in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's in Piper's book on Providence on page 29. So another question that comes up when we talk about this for our lives. Remember, we're asking the question, what is God doing when we're in a very hard situation? When we have um, questions about how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to live right now? Why are these things happening the way that they're happening? Another question that comes up when we answer that with the understanding of God's providence is this. What about all the sin and evil and tragedy in the world? That's a great question. That's a really hard question. There is sickness that comes into our bodies. There is death. There are um, crimes. There is wrong that happens in this world. How is God using that? Um, An answer, in short, is this. God, in fact, even uses evil to accomplish his purposes. William Still, a previous generation's preacher from Scotland, said it this way. God is the one who wields sin without sinning. God alone can do that. Now, we don't know all the answers to all these things. Joseph, when his brothers betrayed him, was a part of God's plan. And the purposes of, God's, of God were being worked out. Joseph realized it later. But when he was thrown into the pit and when he was locked up in shackles and taken away as a slave, surely he did not have the understanding, well, this is just part of God's plan. This is great. No, he was crying out to his brothers that were sitting down by the place, the pit where they threw him. And he was asking for their help while they sat and had lunch. And when you're in a situation where things seem so wrong and you're asking how is God in charge? How is God, what is God doing right now? Sometimes it's really hard. By faith, we have to trust that God is working out things because later in Joseph's life, he could say, you intended it for evil to his brothers. Yeah, you did. And it was wrong what you did. But God intended that for good and for the saving of many lives. So what is God doing right now? That's a great question. The answer is that God is working everything according to his wise and his good plans. And this is good news for those that are in Christ. Do God's plans include your good? That's the question then. God's plans are good for his people. It says in Romans 8.28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you're a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, then everything that happens, every wrong, everything you suffer, everything you walk through where you don't know how to live and how to act, and you're wondering, what is God doing? The things that you don't know, where you're down in what seems like a labyrinth, God is above it. And he is working it out, Christian, for your good. The only question then, the one question then that I have to put before you is this. Are you in Christ? Is your faith in him? If it is, everything is going to work out for your good. Now, God's plans do include your good even when you suffer. And he uses those sufferings for your good. 
Now, there's a question later in Romans that says this in 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? These things are these sufferings of this present world. And the answer is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, look, the greatest thing that you could possibly get is, has been given to you in his son because he didn't spare his son. But he took his son and he said, I want you to die in their place. I want you to lay down your life. I want you to die a criminal's death on a cross. God did that for you. And if you understand that this has been done for you, that he has overcome the grave, then can you question that God would withhold any good thing from you? And the answer is no. And nothing can separate you from that love of God. Nothing can separate you from the goodness of God towards you. He will, even through everything that you will suffer, every question that you will wrestle with in this world, as you don't know God's plan, He will use it all for your good. If you don't know Christ, this is a call to take refuge in Him. Earlier in, this, in that book of Romans, and later in that book of Romans, we see a couple things. It says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is what you have to do. You have to trust in Him. You have to rely on Him. It says in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It says later that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we, you, are called to turn to Him by faith now. And when you do that, you're a part of God's plan. You're a part of the things that you still don't understand that belongs to God, His providence. But it's for your good now. And you're inside of this. And believer, let me tell you this. You have to learn to trust through the ups and downs of this life that every single thing that is happening is and will be for your best good. Every loss, every pain, every win, every joy... God causes all things to work together for good to those that love Him, to those that are called according to His purpose, for every Christian. Every one of us who are trusting in Jesus, we can contemplate how all the things that are happening are happening under God's control and that God's good purposes are happening to do us good. It's hard to understand somehow, but you can learn certain phrases. Well, this hard thing that is happening is for God's glory and it's for our good. Truly for our good. So this includes the sins of wicked people. You don't understand it. Of course you don't. I don't either. But it's true. God's word has said it. And you're not going to understand it in this world. And so the last part, after the, the providence of God has been revealed, it has been made known to Abraham's servant, it's Rebecca. Now Rebecca comes with her servant and they bring this um, caravan of camels back to the promised land. And this is a happy ending for God's people. I think in this, there's a picture of the bride of Christ being brought to God the Son. But that's for another time and that's for something to contemplate. What we have in this narrative is that Isaac gets a wife, verses 61 through 67. 
God's plan has been revealed. And in the end, it is good and it is satisfying and it is comforting. It's a beautiful picture because Isaac is presented with his bride and the bride hops down from the camel and she puts her veil on and now they get married. And it says that they go in and they, they consummate the marriage and Isaac is comforted. It says, after Sarah's death, after his mother's death. Now, here's a question that might come to you. You might trust as a believer that God will work all things for good, but you might think, what if I screw it up? Uh, I know God won't mess anything up, but what if, what if I screw this whole thing up? I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, you are. I am too. Here's the thing. Um, you, might have, you might be fearful about your ability to trust. You might be fearful about the sin that you see in your life and if you'll overcome that or not. Don't worry, you will sin. Don't worry, you will make mistakes. God knows this. And that verse is just as true, that he will work all things for good for those who love him, including your failures, including the sin that you're wrestling with and against and trying to get away from it. God will work all things. All things includes all things to magnify his grace. We're going to sing a song in a minute written by Charles Wesley. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Still doing this. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. You see, it doesn't depend on you and the quality of your obedience. You get to learn how to walk by faith knowing that God does have a plan, it is good, and it is good for you. So in Christ, all that you understand and all that you do not understand is working, brothers and sisters in Christ, for your good. Therefore, this passage teaches us to trust God obediently, especially when we do not comprehend what he's doing.